Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sangera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. I would hope I haven't stretched the boundaries that will, will come back retrospectively to haunt me. I don't believe I have. But I don't mind stretching them at the time if I believe I'm right, even though somebody else has a different ethical view. If I believe with other colleagues that it's the right thing to do for the patient, then I, then I think we'll have a go. In the UK last year, 50,000 people went through fertility treatments. Big egg, as it's sometimes called, is booming. But there's this tightrope, a tightrope that balances between what's possible and what's ethical and what's harmful. And there is always someone dancing along it, pushing the boundaries. It's how we innovate, but it's also how we mess up. And it's a tightrope being danced along, in particular, in the murky and anxiety-ridden and highly lucrative world of fertility. It's an industry that has completely changed the way that we think about the very basics of human life, how we're made, how we're born, and who we're born to. And at the forefront is a company called Profam. I'm Basha Cummings, and in this week's Slow Newscast, we're investigating a procedure that has the potential to reconfigure the rules of biology, but at a cost. And we're asking, how did we end up in a place where the founder of the UK's most successful fertility clinic can sell healthy young women an expensive surgical procedure to extend their fertility and delay the menopause, a procedure that some experts are claiming is still highly experimental? Okay, so... What if I made you that offer? An offer to override your body's ageing process. And what if I said that I could start this now, just with one small operation, just a slice? But of course, there's a catch. You have to be young and you have to be willing to take a risk. That's pretty much the promise that Profam made when it burst into the public eye in August of 2019. Profam is an organisation established to protect fertility and menopause. But let's start at the beginning. It touted a medical breakthrough that it claimed could revolutionise the lives of half the world's population. Science has presented a new opportunity to those women who may struggle with fertility but at the same time provide a means to store their own natural hormones that can be used to delay the symptoms of menopause. 
Pro-fam clinicians appeared on TV sofas and breakfast TV shows, proclaiming the benefits of this new procedure. And in the Sunday Times, an end to the menopause. Pioneering surgery can delay the effects for 20 years, it says. In uh, ProFam, this is the, uh, the company who have uh, pioneered this surgery. Here we have a proper scientific step forward. This so what do we think? Would you give this a go? And the message that they were spreading was this. There's no need to worry about running out of time to have a baby. No need to worry about hot flushes or fuzzy memory at the peak of your career. I mean, it sounds pretty good, right? But the catch is this. This is an insurance policy that needs to be taken out early. The younger the better, the clinic's website says. And it's prompted a fierce backlash from experts who are concerned about how safe it actually is. Because while ovarian tissue freezing, the thing that Profam does, that it says can delay your menopause or preserve your fertility, that in itself is not a new technique. But the way that ProFam is offering it is new. It's being offered in a new way to a new set of people for a new purpose, specifically to young, healthy women who probably wouldn't have been thinking about the menopause or extending their fertility for decades to come. It is an incredibly powerful message and it taps into a deep, deep anxiety that many women have, myself included, about how on earth you're supposed to arrange your life when the dreaded biological clock is ticking. Sorry to go all Bridget Jones on you all. But it's also a world that is full of cowboys. And my colleague Claudia Williams has spent months trying to sort fact from fiction, speaking to leading figures from scientists to doctors to businessmen. And it's a story that centres around a man called Simon Fischel. Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily Sensemaker email, and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news, and we'd love for you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download our app and take the free trial. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial and help make the news. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Basha. So, Claudia, I'm fascinated and terrified and somewhat, I'll admit, infuriated and confused by this story. I don't really know what I think. So let's go from the beginning. Where do we start? Well, it starts in the early 1980s. And what's remarkable about the story of ProFam is that it really stretches back right to the birth of the fertility industry. I interviewed Simon Fischel, the CEO of ProFam. He's in his 60s now, and you can just about tell from his accent that he's from Liverpool. He's this charming guy with a real knack for telling a story, and he's a pretty big deal in the fertility industry. Hello. Hi. Hi, can you hear us properly? Oh, perfectly well. Let's go back to this one very specific moment in 1980. Fischl was a student at Cambridge University, and he was making his way up the stairs when he was met by one of his teachers. Well, yes, it, it, actually it was the head of department. So as uh, a young 
graduate student in those days, uh, if you were lucky, if you got anywhere near the feet of the head of department, uh, let alone him stop you on the stairs and actually say to me that, Fischl, I think you, you may have a, a brilliant research career ahead of you. Don't ruin it to go and work for the devil. The devil, or devils, were three people. Robert Edwards, Patrick Steptoe and Jean Purdy. Just two years earlier, they'd achieved a remarkable scientific breakthrough. I mean, arguably we are talking more important than the moon landing here. They were behind the birth of Louise Brown. I understand preparations are now being made to deliver the world's first test tube baby by caesarean section within the next week. The first baby in the world born via in vitro fertilisation, or IVF as we know it now. Fischl was a young researcher at this point and had been offered the job of Deputy Scientific Director at Bornhall, the world's first private IVF clinic, run by those three pioneers. He accepted. But at the birth of such a new science and a new procedure, not everyone was on board. Not everyone sees vitro fertilisation, as the process is called, as a simple medical procedure. The Vatican, for instance, considers it illicit. When you first started in the industry, not everyone was particularly pleased with it, were they? Not everyone was on board with IVF. What was it like in those early years? Well, people from all walks of life, even the uh, chair of the British Medical Association said the work was unethical when it actually got going at Bourne Hall. So the view was that uh, if if, uh, somebody like myself went and joined Edwards, we'd be dragged down into the devil's pit uh, along with those two two pioneers who the, uh, I think it was, uh, well, I better not say in case I get the wrong newspaper, but it was an editorial, one of the newspapers that used the alliteration, the work of Steptoe and Edwards is worse than a backstreet abortionist in Bangor. I think they used Bangor because that's where Edwards got his first degree. So, you know, that's, that's what the mood was like at the time. There was uh, enormous uh, antipathy towards the, the work that we were doing. And why were these people so critical? What was the nature of the criticism? In many ways, I think as generations move on, it's quite hard for a current generation to understand the mood of the past. And I, I, I think it was very simply two things. One, it was believed that the process of reproduction is in the divine providence. And it's for God to decide whether you're fertile or infertile. And they didn't make a distinction, for example, whether it was God to decide whether you should have a medical procedure or not. And secondly, the Catholic Church was absolutely against any form of interference in any event, even um, before Louise Brown was born. So anybody of the Catholic persuasion would have their leader, the Pope, vehemently against any of these technologies too. IVF is a process that involves fertilising an egg outside the human body and it took 450 attempts before the first test tube baby, Louise Brown, was born. Like Fischl says, it's hard to overstate how staggering it was back then. The world hadn't seen anything like it and it caused an uproar. Even people within the scientific community thought it was immoral and unethical to create human life this way. It was seen as an attempt to play God. For British gynaecologist Patrick Steptoe, on the right, and physiologist Robert Edwards, it was the successful conclusion of 12 years of experiment. But their success was immediately greeted by a host of difficult moral and medical questions. Tonight, is England's test tube baby a medical blessing or a moral nightmare? 
After Louise Brown's birth, her family received hate mail. The American millionaire who funded much of the research, Lillian Lincoln Howell, she chose to remain anonymous until her death in 2014. I mean, in 1984, Fischel was served a writ for murder for research he was carrying out on embryo tissue, which was dismissed. It's an entirely different world compared to today. Since 1978, over 8 million babies have been born globally by IVF. That's not far off the population of Switzerland. In Denmark, one of the countries that uses IVF the most, around 10% of all births now involve assisted fertility techniques. In the UK, it's a lower percentage, but it's still 20,000 babies, more than triple the number of children that are adopted each year. And it's transformed into a global industry expected to be worth nearly $40 billion by 2027. That's the thing, the journey that this industry has gone on from this moment of moral panic about IVF in the early 80s to what feels like, frankly, an overwhelming range of fertility options now from femtech offshoots to apps to startups. Yeah, completely. And I think the more I've reported this, the more it's become clear that the fertility industry is both remarkable and deeply contentious. And Fischl is a remarkable and contentious man. And so then what was it like in those early years in the 80s when you were working at Bourne Hall? And what what do you think it was like for the women that you were treating? There was a certain... We had to be a little bit gritty, uh, a bit of resilience because of the animosity all around. We we never saw the human as any different, in a sense, to um, the work that was being done in animals. So that if you could do something in an animal that was very positive, why couldn't you do it with a human? So it it was scientific challenge. And those of us that uh, were involved wanted to undertake that challenge because we believed we could help. In terms of the patients, it's really a fascinating question because you can't rule against somebody's innate, almost primordial desire to reproduce. There's no doubt that Fischl was really savvy. He could see that private IVF clinics and franchises were the future. There's a huge business opportunity. Around the world, fertility clinics started to split and multiply like cells. By 1991, when the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, or HFEA, started to regulate the industry in the UK, more than 6,000 women were getting IVF treatments per year. Since then, patient numbers have ballooned to over 50,000 men and women a year. And so have the rates of success. For women under 35, they've tripled. So let's go back to official story. We're in the 1990s and he went to Italy to work with a maverick Italian gynaecologist and embryologist called Severino Antonori, who was sentenced to seven years in prison in 2017 for forcibly removing a woman's eggs at his Milan clinic. And this is where Fischl's story gets quite wild. Oh, well, that's, it's a very interesting chapter in my, my personal history. Um, so I was, I was developing this t- technology. So as I said, we began... Fischl was working on a technique that he believed would tackle male infertility, using a micro-injection to pick up a single sperm and push it across the outer shell of the female okay. egg. And I went to see this committee in London who said, hmm, excellent work, Fischl, very good. Um, but you've got to prove it's safe before you use it. So, no, you can't use it on patients uh, because you can't, you know, you haven't proved that it's safe. 
Well, that's a kind of catch-22. But uh, Severino Antinori reached out to me and he said to me, uh, in any event, I'd like you to come and help me in Rome, but we would allow you to be able to do this work in Italy. For, for me, just going to work with Dr. Antinori in Rome wasn't very exciting, but to be able to push this new technology of sperm injection forwards was very exciting. So Fischl moved to Italy and gained the freedom to do the research he wanted to. But he alleges that their partnership ended in a pretty surprising way. So I had a, a strange relationship with him, but I almost kept my own work to myself. We parted ways under uh, very bizarre circumstances. Well, fundamentally, he, he locked me in his clinic uh, one day and he, he came back uh, sometime later after having me imprisoned there for a couple of hours. And he slams down a piece of paper on the desk and he says, uh, Simon, I want you to sign this paper. Fischl says that what Antonori put in front of him was a legal contract stating that he could never work for anyone else. And when Fischl refused to sign, well, apparently the situation escalated. And he then pulled out a revolver and put it to my temple and said, well, you better had or I'll kill you. <laughs> so, of course... Um, well, what does one do in that rather unusual situation? Uh, I, I took a decision at a moment of madness. I signed it, walked out the clinic, went to the airport and flew home. And never went back for quite a long time. I kept looking over my shoulder, even in England, for men with black violin cases. In 1994, Severino Antonori, the Italian doctor, helped one of the oldest women in the world to carry a baby at 63. 63, wow. Yeah. And I asked Simon, did that make him uncomfortable? And the point I was really getting at was that there's clearly a side of fertility science where people are really pushing the barriers of what is acceptable at that point in time in society. And here's what he told me. Yes, well, of course, that wild west of Italy, as they call it, uh, closed down rapidly, uh, eventually, mainly because of um, Dr. Antinori, um, to some extent. And, and then it became the, the most regulated, and it was detrimental to patients, um, unfortunately, for maybe a decade or more because of that. Um, so therefore, one, what it did show, I think what history will show, is you need regulation, but you need permissive regulation. Um, they've been relaxed now, and it's got a little more moderate, which is, which is important. But, but I think a lot, you know, a lot of lessons were learnt, and it, it's still important even today, because there can be rogue individuals in any sphere who want to push the boundaries beyond the, the, what I would say is the, the balance between cutting-edge work and, and ethic and, and, and you know, going beyond what is, what is ethical. And, and do you think there's any times when you have kind of pushed the boundaries? I don't believe I, I have. I've pushed boundaries. Um, I would hope I haven't stretched the boundaries that um, will, will come back retrospectively to haunt me. I don't believe I have, but I don't mind stretching them at the time if I believe I'm right, even though somebody else has a different ethical view. So, Claudia, something is telling me 
that among all of this boundary pushing and innovation, quite a lot of people made a lot of money. Am I right? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fertility industry went from strength to strength in the 90s. There's this whole slew of breakthroughs, you know, new treatments to treat male infertility, to reduce multiple births. And it meant that the whole field was changing constantly. With better access to contraception, better education, improved healthcare, it also meant that at the same time, fertility rates around the world, they're going down. And the women who were having babies were having them later. Take these stats. In 1974, the average woman here in England had her first baby at 24. In 1994, it was 26 years old. By 2017, it was nearly 29. In the context of all of that, interest in IVF was booming. As the industry started to boom, the opportunities for exploitation, manipulation and malpractice, they've also risen over the years. It's something that one expert that I spoke to, Lucy Vanderveel, is linking to the kind of vast increase in the privatised nature of the industry. And so we see within a fairly public health system, a privatised health sector of fertility treatment. Lucy works at Cambridge University's Reproductive Sociology Research Group. We've seen the introduction of reproductive technologies that don't necessarily have a large evidence base. And so that's mostly in relation to so-called add-on treatments, where treatments are added on to the IVF cycle that people pay extra for. But it's not quite clear whether they function or whether they actually improve the life birth rates that you can have at the end of that cycle. And this is where we get into the world of IVF add-ons, which have become part of this industry-wide fault line. And they really get to the heart of that tension between innovation, business and patient care. So you've got the more out there side of add-ons like you know there's these 250 pound IV drips that promise to boost your fertility and I mean they're essentially pointless and then there are more complicated options like time-lapse imaging it's where you take thousands of pictures of embryos and you use it to choose the best one and it sounds like a great deal on average I think it costs about 480 pounds and loads of clinics Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Hello, Tortoise listener. Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Papercuts is the fast, funny, daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a roller coaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half-hour package. That's Papercuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Subscribe on your favourite app. Marketers and business owners, you've been pining after a certain someone. Your job's on the line. You're desperate for them to like you back. Here's a word of advice from me. Talking is hot. Just you and them, finally alone, like us two right now. Maybe under the duvet, headphones on, -on one-on-one. 
Podcast advertising is proven to be one of the best ways to catch their attention. So surprise them while they're tuned in, while the moment's right. Say a line or two that really gets them going. Next time, if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love, experiment with something new. Just focus on your voice. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcast shows with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started. Offer it. But according to the regulator, the HFEA, there's not enough evidence at this stage anyway to show whether it helps or not. In fact, the big concern at the moment is patients being missold treatments. And these add-ons, they're, I guess, at the sharp end of an industry that's gathering a lot of cash in investment, right? I mean, when you look at the numbers, it's quite, it's quite something. Right, yeah. Over the past five years, global venture capital investments in the fertility industry, it's cumulatively £2.2 billion. There's a really clear direction of travel. Over the past two years alone, there's been almost an 100% year-on-year increase in investment. And according to one of the people that I spoke to, I mean, that's more than cannabis tech or telemedicine or any of these areas that you really think the focus is going to be on. And it's hard to keep track. You know, there's so many technologies and apps and procedures that are on offer. There are companies that have fertility vans that drive around urban cities where they offer free fertility tests. And often a fertility test can be a great pathway into egg freezing. So uh, you would have a low test that says, oh, well, your test is below average. So you should consider freezing your eggs because you're already you know, losing your fertility now. And if you have a high outcome, they would say, oh, now is the best time to freeze your eggs because you have great eggs at the moment and you have a really good um, uh, peak fertility, they call it, uh, that you should preserve at this point. So whatever the outcome of a test, it can be an indication for treatment. And so that's really where you see that issue coming in of, you know, what is the conflict of interest here? Is this really to benefit women or is this to benefit the investors in the clinics, or is it a win-win situation? I think for some people, increasing is What Lucy says is really eye-opening. It feels like we're at that point where more and more people are being drawn, sometimes unnecessarily, into this expansive and expensive world of fertility. And I guess it's into this context that you've brilliantly sketched out to us here that ProFam landed last August. Exactly. For a little bit of context here, Simon Fischel is CEO of ProFam and Care Fertility, the enormously successful fertility clinic he founded, is a partner. ProFam offers ovarian tissue freezing, a procedure tried and tested in cancer patients. It's not new in itself, but they're expanding the market and offering it to healthy women. So me, as a healthy woman, if I wanted to get it done, how does it actually work? I mean, it's actually quite simple. You take a slice of ovary, you freeze it and you store it for years. And then when you come to need it, it's re-implanted in little slices that can be kind of, you know, topped up when they run out. It's two things in one. It's an alternative to egg freezing and a way to extend your fertility. And it's also pretty much a natural hormone replacement therapy, you know, something that's widely prescribed to women when they go through the menopause. So that's HRT. I mean, it does sound pretty revolutionary. It does. And I mean, for many, many women listening to this, myself included, it is a powerful message. But to be honest, the thing I think that I'm struggling with is that if I'd heard of what 
Profan was offering when I was in my mid-twenties, I think I'd be pretty confused. In fact, I think it would probably make me feel quite anxious. Partly, I think, because at that age, I really didn't think about the menopause. I really didn't think about running out of time to have a kid. That sort of creeps on you much later. And maybe I'm naive, but I don't know. I mean, Claudia, how old are you? Have you have you thought about it? So I'm 27. And honestly, it's something that's only just starting to kick in. And I think probably it's thanks to reporting this story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but the key thing here is that ProFam is marketing this to women, ideally women even younger than me. That, but that, that to me is the thing that is wild. That I can see the fertility side of this. I could see that 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 would be an attractive offer to a healthy woman in their 20s who know that they're quite focused on their career or, you know, they're not sure about if they want to have kids yet. They might want to put it back later. But the menopause side of this is the thing that gets me because that's the bit, if I'm right in thinking, is is more untested, right? Yeah. And I would challenge you to find me a young woman who is concerned aged 25 about going through the menopause if she's healthy. I think that, you know, maybe that's a failure of our health education, but I really don't think that woman exists. Well, that's a really important part of what's going on here. Let me introduce you to Art Kaplan. I'm the director of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York City. And it's fair to say he's not convinced by ProFam. When I hear about commercial companies starting to say, good news, we're going to offer this, I keep thinking, offer what? A gigantic risk uh, with a gamble that you'd spend a fair amount of money hoping that maybe something would happen? Um, we really don't understand what's going on here at all. And let's take a moment just to kind of go through what this actually means in terms of the menopause, because it's pretty complicated. So what ProFam is saying is that ovarian tissue can be re-implanted somewhere in the body and it can be used to delay the menopause. And the medical argument is this. Women are living longer than ever before, but the average age of menopause, it's the same. It's still 51. This is the first time in a woman's evolutionary history that she is going to be living as long, if not longer, in the menopause. Mm. Now, this has never happened before to women. And when you start to think about the very serious conditions of osteoporosis, cardiac um, um, disorders. And so and, what Profam says uh, is that delaying the menopause can help reduce those risks. Longer and longer for women because they're going to live in the menopause a lot I mean, that's all the point is, Angie. I mean, people didn't have to deal with the menopause 200 years ago, no, exactly. uh, three or 400 years ago, because they died exactly, for it. Exactly. I mean, it's a, we are the sort of first generations of women. Yes. So Lots of the experts I spoke to said the same thing, that ovarian tissue freezing is exciting. But it's also expensive and it's invasive and it's something that should really be offered with caution because there are just so many unknowns and there are potential risks. Will it cause an increased risk in cancer? How long will the tissue last? How effective will it be at restoring hormones? Will the tissue degrade over time? How does it compare to HRT? What about ovarian scarring? At what age will this work? The list, it goes on. I asked Fischl about the backlash and, you know, he told me that he just does not believe that ovarian tissue freezing is experimental anymore or something that could cause harm. And let's be clear, we do need better menopause options. We're in the middle of an HRT shortage, a treatment many women rely on, 
And to be frank, the arsenal for women is pretty limited when it comes to this area. Yeah, but so so we know there are risks, but if the women who have signed up for this type of treatment know what they're getting into, they know those risks, then what, what is the problem if this is giving us more options? Yeah, that's something that I also put to Art Kaplan, and I think he answers it pretty well. So it isn't just a question of what I sometimes have to point out. Medicine isn't a restaurant. You don't go in and order off the menu. The doctor's there to decide what's good to eat, whether it's worth ordering, you know, the apple pie one day, or is it so bad that you wouldn't want to eat it? And so you need guidance. In medicine, frequently, you don't know what's going on, and you're relying on somebody to tell you this is ready to go, it's going to work, it doesn't involve any major risks, and I'm here to tell you it's great. And so commerce should not be leading knowledge, especially commerce that spins it so that it's sort of like, hey, let's do this for your birthday, or here's a fun Christmas present. How about we preserve your tissues? Somehow I find that kind of marketing a little far away from uh, the seriousness of the subject. The thing I keep coming back to with Profam, really, is how young you have to be to do it. Ideally, you want to be in your 20s. I mean, how many 20-something-year-olds can actually afford this? Well, yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's like a pension, isn't it? And I have to tell you, speaking from personal experience, (laughs) but I'm sure I'm not alone, there are no young people who are actually thinking about their pension. I mean, that just, they don't exist. And that's probably the case. But Simon and, you know, other people in the industry too, they're really keen that this is something all young women should think about. And it's kind of where the whole industry feels like it's going. Egg freezing, you know, another fertility preservation technique. It's the fastest growing form of fertility treatment in the UK. That's actually, um, yeah, the younger the better. I think that's a line that you use on your website. And I think... Mm. Your website does take quite a strong line in marketing. I think there's another line it uses, um, you know, will you be ready? Yes. Is there not a risk that by promoting fertility preservation as something that all women should be doing, you might be contributing in some way to a sense of anxiety or kind of suggesting that women who don't do this or can't afford to do this are somehow unprepared for their futures, they're letting their future selves down? I accept that, but also how do you get a message across without it being forthright to some extent? People should need, really do need to understand we are living in societies that are really beginning to struggle. If you live in the West in particular, and especially if you live in Japan, South Korea, China and other countries, you have, there are declining birth rates. And society is going to struggle with those declining birth rates, let alone your own individual Needs So, yes, the message needs to be got across that um, you need to be empowered. We're not saying you, you must do this. You have to, you know, we're twisting your arm to do this. But you need to be empowered. You need to know and understand. But I think what's quite difficult if you are someone that's thinking about these things, thinking about your fertility, is that quite often, as you say, education isn't great. Um, and quite often the people that, are telling you about the different options that you have are also the people that are selling them to you. So it can be quite a difficult industry to navigate as someone who is potentially both a patient and a customer. I agree, and it's always been that way. Let me tell you something. 
There's not a single profile director that gets paid. We are not salaried. We do not get paid to do this. We've put our own funding in to develop this. We just want to try to make sure that we can get something like this out there in a domain for it to work. If the NHS came along today and said, actually, this is the style of preventative medicine that could be beneficial, I'd be delighted. I would be absolutely delighted. The problem is, it's got, like IVF, it's got to be established first before somebody else is going to pay you to do it. So it's about taking, yeah, it is, it's taking our own decisions. Unfortunately, and being able to afford it ourselves to do it. Lucy, the expert who we heard from earlier, sees the whole thing as part of a broader pattern. And I think that's the kind of crucial framing about all of this. Profam, it signals a shift. Well, I think I think Profam is an example of this broader trend of moving from reactive IVF to proactive fertility management in relation to testing and egg freezing and now also ovarian cryopreservation freezing and um, it is a trend that has not exclusively but in many cases has a strong commercial component. What all this means from a commercial perspective is that it's no longer women who are thinking about having a baby who are being pushed to invest in their reproductive health. It's all women. All the time. Whether you want a biological child or not. The whole fertility audience is just completely expanding. This was different 10 years ago. This was different for the previous generation. But for women who are in their 20s, 30s and 40s now, we are confronted with a very different discourse around how we make decisions about uh, our bodies, about our fertility, about um, our um, reproductive capacity. It really does feel like this moment, though, when all of these elements of the story of fertility, the innovation, the risk, the declining fertility rates, anxieties, the hopes, they're all coming to a head. And my question now is this, is menopause delay even something that women want? Well, yeah, there is definitely a concern among some specialists that we are medicalising the menopause. We're making it something to treat, something to fear instead of just a physical process. I'm just a bit scared that we're messing with something that's just naturally meant to happen. Mm. You know, when we get The thing is, if you're not doing it for health reasons, you could end up paying for an operation like this in your 20s, but never actually needing it when you get older. And although for some people fertility preservation can offer a brilliant opportunity for control, there are, of course, lots of people who worry about something like Profam, something that reimagines the path of reproductive biology. They worry that it's disrupting nature. We might pretend that we've moved on since the IVF arguments of the 1970s, but women's reproductive health is still a moral and political battleground. I think there's a reason why Mother Nature you know, basically switches fertility off before we're about 50. Elizabeth Howard is from Catholic Voices, a panel of lay people who share the church's view on current issues. She's donor-conceived herself, and one of her main concerns about fertility preservation techniques and the industry in general is the rights of the child. Even with the advances in health and people's well-being in recent times, it's still the case that you'd be really struggling to be looking after a young child in your 60s or 70s. I think also on a much broader level, seeing children as a commodity can lead to problems. 
instead of instead of a gift. And I think, you know, there have been advances in all sorts of areas of medicine, which are really, really amazing. But the ethics haven't necessarily caught up. So I think similarly in this area, I think society does have to has take a step back away from the, an individual case and an individual story, which can be obviously incredibly powerful and, and absolutely all consuming for the person involved. But I think it's really important for us to take a step back and look at, you know, the ethics overall and not just in terms of the intended parents for any sort of assisted facility, but also for the children. It's actually something that we asked Simon Fischel about. We put it to him directly. Would he help a woman in her 60s get pregnant, for example? And so that age would depend on her personal circumstances. Um, she could get pregnant doing that procedure, for example, if she was 60, but we wouldn't do it. We would not put that tissue back so she could get pregnant at 60. But we'd put it back so she could get hormones. Why not? Only because of the obstetric risks, really. Um, again, there's, I, don't, I think age is a very arbitrary thing. And what's your personal view on that, on older mums? You can have uh, young people that can't cope with a, with a baby. You know, they can't cope with a family. Um, and, an, and an older parent might be the most wonderful parent you could imagine. I have no fixture on a particular age. I do have a concern about creating problems and if there were medical problems that would be created um, clearly a social problem that would be created um, if she's not particularly healthy she hasn't got a partner she's 60 years old and everybody tells you that actually she's going to have a terrible obstetric time no I wouldn't do that I wouldn't be comfortable doing that it wouldn't be my decision anyway you take it to an ethics committee Actually, one of the biggest worries in the industry is not about older women having babies. It's about whether clinics are taking advantage of older women by offering them treatments that are unlikely to work. The success rates for women, even in their 40s, they're low. I put these questions very directly to Simon Fischel. I asked him how many women have had this procedure now through Profam and how many of those were healthy women opting to do this for social reasons. And the answer was quite surprising. So we've only had 11 since, before, since then lockdown hit. We've got, I think it's now about um, 200 that are on the waiting list. It will be a slow build-up again because of the nature of the pandemic. Um, so, that, so you went public in August and then the pandemic hit in March and no women had the procedure in that? intervening time yes and and one of the reasons for that was that a um, partnership with profam was the birmingham women's and uh, women's and children's hospital trust was a partner in profam so the surgery was to be done at the birmingham women's hospital now for whatever reason you know once once you're working with the, the, the NHS Trust, they had their own surgical, well, the demands, and were making it a bit difficult to get surgical opportunity. So, so there it is. At the end of all that, the result is that a year after Profam's big marketing splash, no new women have had the procedure. The phrase, Emperor's New Clothes, comes to mind. It absolutely does. And 
It's, it's just a maze, isn't it? On the one hand, it's clear this industry has positively transformed the lives of millions of women, millions of families. I mean, I, I don't mean to be too grandiose here, but it's also, I think, transformed the limits of what's possible for a human to do. It's transformed the way that we think about having babies and who can have them and when. But on the other hand, we can see from this story how murky it all is, how there is such huge potential for exploitation and manipulation. And at the heart of it are women already under immense pressure to make decisions about a future that no one can really predict for them. Claudia, thank you. Thank you, Pasha. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I think there's a really good chance that you'll enjoy all of the other journalism that we do at Tortoise. There are articles that you can read through our app and online. And because we're an open newsroom, there are a whole load of editorial meetings that you can join in on from wherever you are in the world. You can shape our journalism and the stories that we tell. So just get our app and you can get access to everything that we do. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for a 30-day free trial. Oh, and of course, just as importantly, if you like this podcast, then do share it or give us a review. Thanks and see you next week. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's Deputy Editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection to find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With ACAST podcast ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started.